is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Well, welcome to this episode of Transitional Matters. Today I'm joined by Dr. Amy Pearson. Amy, I'm going to go through your bio because like, you have some fascinating things on there. So you're a chartered development psychologist, expertise in autism and neurodiversity, and your research, from what I can see, focuses on kind of well-being or the kind of autistic people through the lifespan. I think you kind of term it. You're a member of a million different societies, which is really cool. So you're a senior lecturer in psychology at Sunderland University, fellow of Higher Education Academy, member of the Experimental Psychology Society, International Society of Autism Research, British Psychological Society Development Section, and co-author of the, I'm guessing BPS stands for British Psychology Society Developmental Forum. That's quite a lot of things. If it's all right, I'm going to get you to summarize basically who you are and what you do and kind of give us a flavor of maybe kind of what led you to this area of specialization and things. Yeah. So yeah, that, that makes it sound like I do a, a hell of a lot of stuff. And I, I do do a hell of a lot of stuff. Um, but a lot of those are, they are memberships that I have of professional bodies um, that allow me to do things like attend conferences and network with other people in my area and collaborate with other people. But as you said, I am a developmental psychologist, so I do autism research primarily, but I'm also interested in other forms of neurodivergence. And I got into the field. I have a bit of a strange story, I think, compared to a lot of autistic autism researchers. So I got into the field because my brother was autistic and he was diagnosed when he was a kid back in the 90s. So he was about eight when he got his diagnosis, which at the time was was late diagnosed. Like that was that seemed like a delay compared to other kids. And when I was at university, I chose to do a report on autism. We could choose anything and I decided to read up on it. And my interest kind of grew from there. So I ended up applying to a PhD in autism research which was very kind of grounded in a cognitive developmental perspective. Developmental psychology primarily has taken a very deficit-focused view to autism historically. So autism has been viewed as a disorder characterized by deficits in social communication and social relationships, um, language difficulties, and repetitive and restricted interests. So the way that we've kind of thought about autism has been really deficit-based And that was the view I had while I was doing my PhD. The research I was doing was looking at how autistic people understand the world from other visual viewpoints. So how we we put ourselves in other places to imagine how things would look from someone else's perspective. And I had that same kind of developmental kind of deficit-based perspective. And then I finished my PhD and I went on to start reading up on neurodiversity and engaging with a lot of work from autistic advocates. And that led to two things, which one of which was a shift in terms of the research I do. So I do very experiential research. I'm much more focused on things that make a difference to the everyday lives and well-being of autistic people. The other thing was that I came to realize I was autistic myself. 
through a lot of the engagement I had with the wider autistic community. And that was a bit of a, a bit of a change for me, a bit of a, I guess, a reconceptualization of my entire identity, which uh, is always fun. So yeah, that led to, to kind of the direction that my interests have headed in now, which is trying to do work that is really focused on, on making the world better for autistic people as much as we possibly can. I think that's really interesting what you say, kind of how it's come from a deficit perspective to almost it brings, I'm going to say benefits. So I, I, as we, just before we hit record, I said, I'm, I'm really nervous about this episode. I don't normally get nervous actually when recording these, but I don't typically, I'm, I'm was diagnosed with Asperger's, which I guess now is on the autistic spectrum. I think that was like kind of 1998. I was about 14. It was a co-diagnosis with, with dyslexia. And I can remember th- if I look at my life, initially it really did feel like a disability. Strange to say, but I kind of was a little bit of a loner. I don't mean I had no friends, but I didn't really belong to any particular one social circle. I kind of floated in and out of several, and I think I probably still do. But I kind of, as my life's gone on, I've come to see it in a very different light in that it allows me to think differently. And I bring different skills, perhaps, than uh, a neurotypical. Is that a change in society or is that just a change that I've become older and I've developed my own skills, which are now beneficial to society? What, how would you kind of parse those two things apart? I think it's both. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's both of those. I think there's been a definite shift towards knowledge about autism in society increasing. So there's still a, a hell of a lot of stigma associated with being an autistic person. Um, autistic people are stigmatized kind of as a group because of the perceptions people have about what autism means, that it's disorder, that it is deficit, that it's impairment and should be pathologized. We need to be remediated. But also as individuals, because when you don't fit in and you are different to other people, people think you're weird and that's a bad thing often you don't fit in with social groups. But I think one of the things that comes with getting older is that there's often that shift in how you think about your own identity. And I don't know about you, but masking is incredibly exhausting. So suppressing who you are in order to try and avoid stigma and to fit in, it's tiring. And as you get older, I think you get to that point where you're a bit like, yeah, I don't want to do this as much anymore. I'm just going to kind of try and be me and accept myself for who I am. I can completely see that maybe I'm progressing slowly to become that grumpy old man who just doesn't really care about social like kind of perception. Yeah, I completely agree with you with the masking. I mean, as as an Aspie, I, I kind of like consciously remember learning all these, what I'm going to call like social rules, which just seem like, oh, okay, so this is how I have to behave in this setting. And and you're right, it's it's a constant like, now I don't think I think of it consciously, but I can certainly, if I've been in a social setting for a long time, I'm shattered. If I could just kind of come back to, I mean, so, so obviously I think some of the listeners might not kind of know what neurodivergent is. I mean, maybe they do because it's a lot more in the media and things, but could you explain a little bit more kind of conditions that covers? Because it's far more than just Asperger's and autism, isn't it? Yeah, neurodiversity is such a, a broad umbrella term. So neurodiversity itself encapsulates the idea that people vary from each other in terms of their brain, how they think, um, and how that manifests in our behavior. And that the diversity we see 
across all different kinds of people can be compared to something like biodiversity in nature, that we are going to see all different kinds of humans, and that's just kind of a given for how complex and chaotic humans are. But within that umbrella term of neurodiversity, we see people who are more typical or appear to be more similar to each other. And we refer to those people as neurotypical. They represent kind of the, the average way of thinking, of existing and behaving in the world. And then people who diverge from that in some way, we refer to as neurodivergent. And there's a huge amount of debate, I think, even within the academic sphere as to who comes under the heading of neurodivergent. Um, because some people would include developmental disabilities and differences like autism, dyslexia, ADHD, dyspraxia, um, Down syndrome. And some people would also include things like acquired differences. So things like PTSD or depression, anxiety, and then other mental health conditions like bipolar, schizophrenia, and so on. I am someone who falls into the latter camp, so I would include all of those things because I think everyone who is different on the basis of their cognition, their behavior, tends to be othered. So they experience the same kind of stigma. Um, but not everyone would take that viewpoint. So some people would have a kind of a, a, what I would think of as a, as a narrower idea of what, who neurodiversity includes. But I think if we include all kinds of minds, it kind of makes more space for I guess a conceptualization which maybe shifts us away from just focusing on, on individual conditions and differences towards accepting difference more broadly, which would be more beneficial to us all in the long run. That makes a lot of sense. Can, can I come on to another definition then? So this is the time of the definition. I think, as I said a minute ago, when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed with Asperger's, but that's now kind of, I'm not going to say it doesn't exist anymore, but it's kind of been put onto the autism spectrum. Could you explain kind of why those have been brought together? Because from my understanding, they can be very, very different kind of how they manifest in somebody. Why are they being put on the same spectrum? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. So originally, the research that was conducted back in the 80s acknowledged that there appeared to be a huge amount of variation among people that met this criteria for, for what they were calling autism at the time. So the, the diagnosis of autism has, has kind of shifted a little bit since its initial conceptions. It started off as kind of a form of childhood psychosis, childhood mental health issue. Then it was labeled as Canna's autism. And then once we started to look into that representation of it, there was recognition that you had some people who might struggle with language, where some people didn't, and um, some people who were really socially active and socially seeking, but struggled to fit in. Some people who were socially completely uninterested, people who had hypersensitivity to particular sensory stimuli, and some people who were hyposensitive or not sensitive enough to particular stimuli, or a mixture of the two. Effectively, that there was a huge amount of variation across people. And at the time, there was difficulty in thinking about how to diagnose it. So there were discussions around what kind of criteria people had to meet and how that might manifest. And that was called the, the kind of the triad of malfunctions, lovely word, or triad of impairments, which was that you just had to have difficulties across social communication and social interaction and repetitive and restricted interests. And back in the 80s, there was this acknowledgement that actually there were some people who hadn't been picked up in childhood, but showed these differences. And they made it into adulthood 
And that having a diagnosis that could be given to these people might help them to access support, help them to conceptualize themselves a little bit more and, and understand their own identity. And that's kind of what led to the introduction of, of Asperger's as a diagnosis. So it wasn't that we necessarily thought that people were, were different, that autistic and Asperger people were different from each other, but that it might kind of broaden that diagnosis out to include people who might not be captured as children. And then over time, that became very, I guess the, the diagnostic criteria became reified. So we started thinking of these as two really distinct things and then realized that was really unhelpful because there was this assumption that people with a diagnosis of Asperger's or what was called high-functioning autism, um, that these people would need no support in their lives, that they could just kind of get on with everything, that their, their mental health was not impacted, and that turned out to be incredibly wrong. And so it was, it was thought that by collapsing them both back into autism and just recognizing that autism is, is hugely heterogeneous, that that might actually be more helpful for people in the long run. But as with always with clinicians, you know, there was not as much thought went into how this might impact people thinking about their own identity and their own label and how that's changed. It was just like, this will be useful for diagnosis. Well, that's a fascinating history. I didn't, I didn't know, uh, you know, some of that. And that's the, uh, uh, thank you for that. I'm going to bring this on to, obviously this podcast, Transitional Matters, is kind of about the big picture thinking, kind of the massive trends and mega trends that are going on in the world. And one of the things that I see going on is this kind of, well, I term it that we're moving to the age of awareness. And I've spoken about this on a few different shows, but just to kind of reintroduce the concept, the digital age, kind of when we invented the semiconductor and the internet and computers and everything we're using right now to record this conversation, essentially I, I term that kind of the age of measurement. Like that's what we've become incredibly good at. And now we're using that measurement to bring awareness to things. And in that, you know, companies are having to change because people are becoming aware of, well, is that good? Is it bad? Do I, do I agree with that morally or not? And, you know, there are hundreds of different examples of that. But what I want to bring this onto is kind of the movement that I think fits into this, which is kind of increasing diversity. I think it's great the early moves we've seen by a lot of the companies that, you know, it's it, a lot of it's around uh, increasing diversity in terms of sex, in terms of race, in terms of perhaps background. But I think one of the ones that is kind of being overlooked from what I see is diversity in terms of neurodivergence. Would I be fair in saying that? Or there are a few examples where they actively go out and find, in fact, it might have been some of your research I read that was talking about a couple of companies which kind of actively go out and try and diversify across kind of cognition. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's a growing awareness among companies. So I, th I think this is something that we are seeing an increase in. So I've done some kind of outreach recently with an international company who's looking to understand more about neurodiversity and, and how they can support neurodivergent employees. But I think there's, there's kind of two distinct things there. There's this growing awareness that neurodivergent people might contribute some really kind of unique ways of thinking and doing things, which in terms of like, you know, the business and how things run might be really useful. I'm not going to go on a rant. I was going to say I'll end up going on a rant about like capitalist approaches to neurodiversity and I'm not going to do that. But I think the other issue that we can see as well is that actually neurodivergent people are already embedded in these companies. 
there are a lot of people who already are working businesses that are, are not disclosing that aren't out and that are probably masking quite a lot in their jobs. And by having that awareness for companies, we can start to think about how to better support neurodivergent employees that are existing in a company whilst also trying to bring more people in as well. So I think that there is a shift towards recognizing it, but a lot of it is moving past very um, rigid, ironically, ideas about how things should work and how people should act and what that means. So acknowledging that within your employees, you know, someone who, if we think about something like an interview, might not appear to make a lot of eye contact, um, might be quite efficient and to the point in their answers, that might be taken as someone who is disingenuous or disinterested in the job when actually that's just someone communicating in their natural style. So that's the kind of thing I think we need a, a growing awareness of rather than just the idea that neurodivergent people have strengths. It's, well, actually, we might look quite different sometimes, but that doesn't mean that we lack capability. What do you think some of the benefits are to companies? I mean, kind of, I guess what I'm asking is kind of like, what's the benefit of having a neurodivergent thinker? What makes that thinking different? You know, kind of bring this back to kind of that psychology part, you know, kind of what is the difference? Yeah. So that that's going to depend on who you hire effectively in terms of like what their neurodivergence manifests as and the differences that they have. So we might see things like really detail-oriented thinking. Um, so people who have a really strong attention to detail. You might have people who actually have really excellent interpersonal skills because they have a, a really deep understanding of how people interact with each other. You know, if you've spent years kind of trying to build up a, a bit of a Rolodex of what people do. You might have someone who who is actually really good at interacting with lots of different kinds of people, people who think outside of the box. So, And I think that's one of the things about diversity more broadly, whether it's neurodiversity or, or any other form of diversity, is that just having a diverse workforce means you're going to have ideas coming from different areas that you might not have thought of. And that means better problem solving. It means more innovation. And that just in itself, I think, would be an argument for, for having a more divergent workforce in general. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. You know, when you actually look back at kind of the history of innovation, it doesn't come from doing the same thing over and over again. It comes from doing something different. Most humans, we don't like doing something different. And certainly, you know, companies, if we view companies as just a, the output of a group of people, so a group psychology is, is basically an organization, isn't it? And yeah, absolutely. You know, kind of, we certainly have tremendous hurdles as a human race to overcome, and we're not going to get there by doing the same thing. I think this is, it's an incredible time. I, I think it's amazing that we're starting to see this be embraced and, you know, I hope companies see that benefit even more. Some of your research though kind of covers kind of the opposite side. Let's talk about kind of inequality, dehumanization underemployment. Could you kind of just outline some of the things you see in that space and maybe kind of what your research has, has shown? So I, I do research around dehumanization, stigma, masking, and I've got a particular focus on interpersonal relationships. So recently I've been doing research around the experience of, of interpersonal violence and abuse among autistic adults. Some of that is abuse from, from people like friends, family members, but I've also been looking at experiences of intimate partner violence. And one of the things that we see within the research is that all of these issues feed into each other. So 
the need to suppress aspects of your own identity. Though everybody does that on a day-to-day basis, like we, we all monitor how we appear in social situations depending on, on the needs of the situation to try and, you know, fit the context, make sure we're acting appropriately. But people who are stigmatized for being different have to do that in very different ways. So it's almost like suppressing core aspects of yourself, not just to fit in, but also to avoid stigma and avoid other people making these negative judgments, which lead to things like, you know, lower societal participation, underemployment, higher risk of victimization, higher risk of, you know, suffering a hate crime. And so that feeds back in to then we kind of see this vicious cycle between people being dehumanized and stigmatized and then being victimized because of that which then feeds back into masking and their own kind of suppression of the self. So a lot of the research I've been doing has been looking at understanding how that manifests for autistic people in particular, but a lot of the people we speak to are are neurodivergent, like in in multiple ways. And I could probably talk to you for an entire day about how we separate forms of neurodiversity and and whether autism and dyslexia and dyspraxia are all distinct, because don't really think that they are. So that's a that's a whole, I guess, a whole other discussion in itself. But what we're finding is that effectively, like the the people that we interview have had these really horrific experiences. And a lot of that seems to come down to the fact that, you know, from very early on in life, they are thought of as weird and lesser than other people. I think from my own experience, I mean, I'm, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say I'm severe on the spectrum. I, you know, I I do fit into society quite easily, but from my own experience, I, I kind of, yeah, I go, I, I have experienced that. Uh, certainly when I was younger, as you know, as I said before, if, if you're willing to, you know, kind of some of the things which are useful when I talk to like my, I'm going to call them neurotypical friends, it's kind of like, how do you translate between the kind of neurodivergent or Aspie as I'd call it and kind of neurotypical? Like kind of what's the gap? How do you breach it? So if I if I give you some of the things that I've experienced, and maybe you can give like the kind of the, the psychology behind that, and if you're willing to, if if that's all right, I'll be brave and and bear all my ills because I do think when I kind of have these conversations with people who think more typically, they're like, oh, okay, that's that's an in- I didn't know that you kind of thought from that perspective. So I think kind of, we've already covered like kind of one of the first ones, which is as a kid, I was just a bit of an outsider. I think that comes down to, as you say, a few different things, depending on the the neurodivergence presenting. For me, I think it was, there were all these social routines, which just didn't really make any sense to me. But if I didn't follow them, then I was kind of an outcast. Is that quite typical? That is. Have you heard of the double empathy problem? No. I'm going to, I'm making notes now. I don't normally make notes while I record a podcast. Amazing. So this, I'm very excited to be able to explain this. So the double empathy problem, it's a theory that was proposed by an autistic academic called Dr. Damien Milton, who does phenomenal work, um, kind of pulling together psychology and sociology. And effectively, he looked at this history of, of framing of autistic social skills as impaired and said, hang on a minute. Social interaction is bi-directional, like it's a two-way street. So if there's difficulty in communication between an autistic and a non-autistic person, you can't put all of the blame for that onto the autistic person. And he effectively said that, you know, when we interact, we draw upon this different sets of contextual information. So I have my own life experiences, my own way of moving and talking and, and kind of thinking about the world. 
and someone else will have theirs. And those things don't always match up. So there's going to be breakdowns in communication between people who have those different contexts. And this is true for autistic and non-autistic people. It's the same as if you go to somewhere where you don't speak the language and you're trying to have a conversation and ask for directions and there's, you're not quite, you know, you're trying to direct someone and maybe there's a little bit of gesture involved and you're not quite getting the words. But you wouldn't say either of those people are impaired. You would say that they're struggling to communicate with each other. And you see that between autistic and non-autistic people. But because non-autistic people, we think of the majority in society, there's so many more of those people. Autistic people have the pressure put on them to understand the social rules for those people rather than to try and find that kind of middle ground where if there's a misunderstanding, we both take responsibility and, and explain ourselves more clearly or, you know, we decide that actually we're going to be really straightforward in the way that we speak to each other so that it's more accessible um, that maybe eye contact isn't necessary or that if we need clarification on something, well, we'll ask for it. Those kinds of things can, can really make a difference in terms of building those bridges. So there's some really nice research that's been coming out recently showing that information transfer between autistic people and other autistic people and neurotypical people and other neurotypical people is more effective. So effectively, like within your own group, you can communicate more effectively. When you try and share that information across groups, that's where you start to see the breakdowns. And so we can use research like that to think about, well, what, what do we need to teach people? Like, is this like teaching cross-cultural skills? And instead of just, you know, accepting that this is the way all people communicate, we say, actually, the, there are different ways of communicating for different people. And here's how we try and bridge that gap. I think that there's a similarity here. So like, I don't know whether you ever, I'm, I might get this guy's name wrong and I apologize for, to him for this, but there's a, I'm sure his name was Alvin Toffler. So he wrote a book called Future Shock. So this isn't talking about neurodivergence or nipical, but just kind of the shock which you get when you go into a future place or to a foreign place, that all the rules and systems, the culture, is foreign and one gesture in your land doesn't equate to a gesture in the other community. And I guess that's essentially what you're saying is that we've all, I think everybody can kind of relate to that when you go abroad somewhere and you're like, oh, that's different. But as you say, we don't kind of go, oh, well, they're wrong. Maybe we did in kind of like a few hundred years ago when we've, but no, that's really interesting. And I think certainly that part about kind of communication within your own, can I call it like a divergent group? <laughs> That's really fascinating. The other thing I want to come on to is like the tiredness of masking. You know, why is it so tiring? It is, yeah. It's a, it's a common thing. And it, it tends to lead to, in some people, like really extreme exhaustion and what's called autistic burnout. There's not a lot of research into autistic burnout at the moment. It's a really emerging area, but we think that it, it can lead to like a quite a serious loss of skills sometimes for people and, and a difficulty recovering from that. And it's because of the high level of cognitive control that it takes to engage in masking. So, you know, it, it's not that it's necessarily always conscious, but the amount of effort it takes to be able to pause what's going on in a particular situation and select the particular response and decide whether that's correct for the context and hold all of this information in mind and then think about how you appear to different people in that group and how much they know about you, how much you can disclose or conceal, whether it's safe to do those things. It's really cognitively taxing. It takes a lot of effort. 
And so it's more exhausting for us because we're having to spend a lot more cognitive resource doing that than someone who knows that they can just kind of approach a group situation and then just be themselves and then not really having to think about that and then not having to engage in that really kind of conscious high level control. That's again, you're kind of like, I, I think I can relate to that certainly in terms of, you know, that, that kind of that burnout. I have to almost have a very good self-care regime of taking time out because otherwise, you know, kind of actually my girlfriend who kind of, if I get really tired, she goes, I, I, this is maybe like politically incorrect and I'm probably throwing her under the bus here. But she goes, you become more Aspie. Like, I guess I don't have the, the, the energy to keep pulling up the social masks as much. But I think the other thing which I personally find tiring is trying to work out what a neurotypical person is trying to communicate. And what I mean is kind of the, the more subtle parts of communication. Again, I'm going to make some figures up, but like, it's something like 10% of communication is the words we use. And there's so much more around kind of expression, around body language, tonality, all this kind of stuff. And is that, again, something which neurodivergents struggle with? Yeah, well, it, it differs. So there's some really nice research um, from both the kind of facial expression literature and from, from action kinematics showing that the quality of our movements differ. So the way that we move our faces and our bodies has differential features to neurotypical people. So it, it's not something you would necessarily consciously notice some of the time, but there tends to be a kind of a, a more jerky movement quality. The velocity is different. And so that manifests in us kind of, of moving in a different way and, and looking very different. Means facial expressions also tend to be different. They're sometimes more expressive or less expressive than neurotypical people. And that means if like to, to go nerdy for a second, effectively we grow up becoming experts in our own communication styles. So, you know, we see ourselves and other people who look like us. And the way in which our brains work, we create what's called more motor resonance when someone moves like we do. So we effectively like our brains are more active in our motor areas when we see someone who moves like ourselves and, and when we move. And that creates that kind of link there where we have more understanding, we have more affiliation, we tend to like those people more. And again, we're a minority. So there are a few opportunities for us to resonate with other people like that. Neurotypical people, they don't get that same kind of feeling when they interact with us. It's been referred to similar to the uncanny valley effect because there's that difference there that makes you kind of like a human, but not quite. And it's not that you're not human, it's just that you, you're a different kind of human, but that can feel inhuman to someone who is not like you. I'm going to throw another one at you. I can kind of be labelled almost a bit of a disruptive troublemaker. And I don't mean to be. I just, I think I just get latched onto something and can't let it go. Now, you might just tell me that's just me. But from what I kind of see from my kind of like Aspie or autism friends, like we tend to be quite obsessive. And once we're interested in something, it's like not enough just to know it on the surface level. I think it, I've been kind of referred to as kind of the corporate grenade thrower, almost like that kind of chihuahua that won't let go of something. It's definitely not. No, that is, that's very much the norm for many of us. I'm going to throw another, another theory at you. So there's a theory called monotropism. 
And this was proposed by Dinah Murray, uh, Mike Lesser, and Wen Lawson back in 2005, um, all of whom are, all were, Dinah has passed away last year, but autistic academics. And the theory effectively tries to explain autistic attention and focus through having a more monotropic lens. So we tend to be more singularly focused on a particular thing and kind of become more deeply interested in whether that is a particular hobby or interest or whether it's an idea. You know, sometimes you can get really stuck in these kind of monotropic ruminations about stuff, which can be like really unhelpful. But non-autistic people, they argue, have a more polytropic spread of attention so they can spread their attention more easily across multiple things in the environment, which makes it a little bit easier to, you know, kind of take in what's going on. You can be in a busy restaurant having a conversation. Um, whereas that for many of us can be really difficult because you've got to pass the sensory information and then also the conversation and who's looking at who and, and what's going on. It makes it more complex. So there is some really early empirical research into this. It's, it's still kind of a, a really young theory, the research really in its infancy, but we think that this might be a, a really good explanation for why we tend to become more singularly focused and why we tend to get really obsessive about particular ideas or things in a good way or a bad way, however that ends up impacting us, which can be positive, but it, it can also be negative. I think where something just resonated with me in, in what you just said about kind of multiple conversations. Because like this is also something which personally I really struggle with is certainly kind of if I go to like a business dinner and I'm just going to paint the setting for a second and you have those round tables with like eight or 10 people and like you're having a conversation with the person next to you. But most times I find myself, I'm like, I now have to like own up and kind of if you've ever sat next to me at business dinner and I'm just nodding away. I might not have been really hearing you, but it is, it seems to just be this complete sensory overload. It's not that I can't hear them, it's I can hear all of them. Is that, again, is that kind of, I think what you're saying is like, it, again, this kind of goes on two different kind of ends of a spectrum, either hypersensitive or hyposensitive. Yeah. And, and for many people, it, it's both in different ways at different times. So like you could be hypersensitive to noise, but then also hyposensitive to to something like touch or, or smell or interestingly i think you can also be hypersensitive and like so effectively you can be hypersensitive in, in an unpleasant way so it might be that like sometimes being in a room where everything's really noisy is like overwhelming and distressing for me personally like i i hate being places where there's unpredictable noise so it's loud and it's too much conversation and too many sounds going on and it's like ah but if I go to a concert, like that sound and the way you can feel it in your body is like, oh, it's amazing. Like, di you know, pump that music directly into my veins, please. Feels brilliant. But yeah, that impact of differential sensory processing can make it really difficult for us to, to switch off from what's going on. So for someone who is not autistic, has no sensory processing differences, the sound in that room just does not sound that loud. Whereas for someone who does have sensory processing differences, it does. And the example I usually use is, it's not with sound, it's with smell, but ask people if they've ever been into a Lush shop. And it's like when you first walk in, the, the smell hits you and it's really overwhelming. But when you're in there for a little while, you acclimatize to it. But people don't who have sensory differences, like you don't acclimatize. It's always there, yeah. 
I think that kind of coming back to kind of the sound thing, it is like when we're talking about embracing neurodiversity in work in the workplace and the benefits it can bring a business. I think this is where also you know, like we've gone through this period of time. I'm going to like really throw open plan offices under the under the bus here because like it's like the least productive place I can be. And I have to say, kind of the changes that happened during COVID for me. You know, I still work from home and the majority of the time is absolutely superb in that I don't get distracted. I still have my noise cancelling headphones on, even if I'm the only person. Normally with the same song on repeat for about six hours, but the open plan office, I don't think it's just neurodivergence. I actually think when you look at kind of the productivity levels, even in neurotypicals, they might be able to code better, but it doesn't exactly mean it's um, good. But I guess that would be kind of a similar thing. I completely agree. And I think your last point's a really good one, actually, is that and you see this in, in, I think, the workplace, in education, across a variety of different fields, that actually a lot of the things that we think would facilitate better accessibility for neurodivergent people actually are better for everybody. So, you know, making open plan, getting, just burning open plan offices to the ground, getting rid of them and having no more hot desking or unpredictability at work, that everyone would be much more productive and happier you know, having classrooms that aren't constantly busy and, and full of too much sensory information that facilitates all children being able to concentrate more effectively. So all of these things end up being really beneficial for everyone. Absolutely. What's going through my head is I want to now start a movement against open plan offices. But no, you're, you're absolutely right. I think there are so many things, there's so many areas where I personally believe that we will start looking at it. Again, kind of coming back to this idea of We've come through this age of measurement and we're coming to this age of awareness that I think we will start, I hope we will start breaking down some of these things and kind of going, oh, it was a lovely idea, but it didn't really work. And I think there's so many bits in society that we can do that. And that's progress, isn't it? It's how we progress from here to somewhere better. Before we finish, kind of in terms of where, I don't know, parents, employers, carers, can get more information on this because again, I think accessing some of this stuff, learning a bit more about it is so important to bridge that cultural gap. What do you recommend people do? Where do you kind of recommend people go? Are there courses? Are there books? Are there, well, I guess we now have a podcast as well. Where do you typically send people to find more out? I'm going to be super biased for a moment and recommend a collaborator of mine called Kieran Rose. Kieran has a website called The Autistic Advocate. He does a lot of advocacy and consultancy work, but he also runs a, a training course, which is incredibly well received. And that is for professionals, for kind of, you know, in general, everyday layperson, the public, anyone can access it. And it's, it's pitched to kind of, so it's accessible to all different kinds of people, but he's great. And we are writing a book together at the moment on masking, which will be out in June. It's called something like autistic masking, understanding suppression of selfhood and identity management. I think the title has changed several times. We have a cover. It will be done and out by June. Amazing. I'll put like a link in the show notes to Kieran's stuff. And when you have stuff on, on your book with him, then, um, you know, please do share it and I'll, I'll get it out to my audience as well. Cause I think, I think this stuff is really important. 
Yeah, no, I agree. There's also there's some great books by Dr. Luke Bearden, who is an academic at Sheffield Hallam, and he writes for, again, like a general audience, so books on how to support autistic young people with things like mental health and anxiety and adults as well. And his work's fantastic. So I would I would recommend his books as well. Like if you can send me links, I'll happily put these things up on, you know, kind of, and then people can access them and, and get them if they want to. And in terms of your work, like kind of where do people go to find out more about you? So I have a website that I, I never update, which is, I think it's like Dr. Amy Pearson at Wix. I know, right? Generally, you can find me on Twitter. Like I am at Dr. Amy Pearson on Twitter and I use that primarily for work. So I'm quite active on there, posting about autism related things. And, and my staff page at the University of Sunderland as well is a good way to get in contact. Because you've got quite a few kind of, I, I'm going to say very accessible research. You don't have to be like a pure academic and go, oh my word, great, I'm going to dig into this. I've got it kind of in front of me, but I know that I've read a few of them. I think you did one kind of, it was summer last year, that it wasn't necessarily on neurodivergence. I think it was on Britney Spears and like the kind of like toxic psychology, but some really interesting things that I think you've covered. So I'll, um, yeah, send me links. I'll put them in the show notes. But Amy, thank you so much for such a great conversation. I've learned a lot. I hope everyone like kind of gets something from it. But no, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great. You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.